0: months into what will soon be known as the Second World War. The blackout curtains have been drawn and all the men who can have left to fight. Welcome to the little village of Chilbury, stuffed full with women who want to do their bit and some who really don't. This book will make you long for tea dances and community gathered together to hear your family's war stories so you can pass them on. It really is a triumphant love letter to England's past, filled with spirit, big S, warmth, big W, little acts of bravery, romance, and a lot of song. And by the end of this podcast, you'll be as flustered as a blue bottle in a jam jar, ready to read and join the Chilbury Ladies' Choir. And here with me to talk about it is Chilbury's creator, debut novelist Jennifer Ryan. Jennifer. Hello
1: and welcome to Booked. Thank you, Charlotte. Hello! (laughs) Thank you so much for that lovely welcome. It's very lovely to have you here. Uh, We were
0: just talking a little bit before um, we started pressing record about roots and heritage. And I'm going to go straight in at the deep end and say that this book came from a very special place with pretty big inspiration behind it and a pair of fantastic grandmothers. Tell me about Shakespeare and Party Granny and their involvement in the creation of Chilbury?
1: Well, uh, that's a very good question. So um, when I was growing up, we had two grandmothers. One was Shakespeare Granny because she was um, uh, very into her literature. And every time we went to see, see how, we had to study a new tragedy and dissect it. And the, the awful question would come, which was, but what is it really about? Culp. and yeah so so you know we'd always lean back and say oh it's about life is a big show isn't it because that's what quite a lot of them are about <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it was stabbing in the dark really and um but our other granny was we called party granny because she had to have a name too and it and was just so obvious that granny she well. because she just loved parties uh, so she became party granny and lived up to that reputation quite no. well. She uh, she loved just getting ready for parties, putting on the high heeled shoes, and uh, she was quite a plump lady as well. So she's totter around, uh, put a nice frock on, get her hair done, go to the hairdresser's the, in the lippy, and uh, and cook huge amounts of food uh, and drink lots of pink gin and tell hilarious stories basically. And some of her stories a lot of her stories were about the Second World War, where her and her friend Letty, Letty is the inspiration for one of the characters in the book, and uh, they would gad around and get up to no end of mischief, and they actually belonged to a choir during the Second World War, Uh, but their choir was not any good, and party granny would find it, tell us these hysterical stories about how bad they were, and they lost a carol competition because they all had very bad colds. And instead of singing Ding Dong Merrily on High, they sung Dig Dog Merrily on High. Um, and they came last, and she thought that was hysterical. and uh, And then once they went to a hospital to cheer one of their members up who was in hospital, and the nurses thought that they were so bad that they paraded them around into every single ward and made them sing... To cheer everyone else up because their singing was so bad that it was hilarious. And uh, my grandmother said with great pride, Of course, we hammed it up hugely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, as a I believe you're a non fiction editor. That's right. I was thinking that maybe you went to source material and fictionalising source material must have felt quite natural. It's as if it's an archive. I mean, I'm so excited to use this word. Uh, the Chilbury Ladies Choir's epistolary novel. <laughs> That's right, it is. We don't get to say that, do we? Epistolary. I um, meaning it's made up of documents. So you wanted to go back to source material but fictionalise it. Why? Because you because it allowed you to get into those voices? Was it was it only ever gonna be in that way, in that form? Or can you imagine having done this with a an authorial, traditional authorial
1: voice? It never really crossed my mind to do that, actually, I think. I Great think it answer. was always it was always going to be. I read a lot of um books in first person, written during the war, or memoirs of people. And I suppose in a way that was the bulk of my research. And so it came second nature to me to actually present the material in that way. During the war, there was something called the mass observation, where at the beginning of the war, there was a couple of sociologists decided that it would be interesting to ask the public to document their experiences, their day-to-day lives throughout the war. Um, And so they basically just put out to the whole British public, anyone who wants to write a diary and send it in, then please do so and we'll archive it for you and we'll um, publish a newsletter that you might be part of this newsletter. And surprisingly, 700 people signed up straight away some of them would write every day and some of them once a week and some of them once a month so it's all very sporadic um but actually that grew throughout the war and i think by the end of the war there were there were a few thousand people who who would do uh the mass observation diaries and it's fascinating reading these day-to-day lives of people of course the result was that it was used for propaganda just to see how well the propaganda was working, but also the rationing. They used it to gauge how people were dealing with the shortages of war, with the the hardships of war. And it, it gave the government an insight, a direct insight into people's lives and how it was being affected. Do you think
0: British people would have been able to express themselves so freely had it not been anonymous? Would anyone have signed up? I'm thinking of Victoria Wood's like, Housewife 49, part of the mass observation, a, a lovely drama about it, lovely, poignant. And it seems like that so many people who held on to themselves were able to let go through the anonymity and through this journaling that was self-expression, which there's no outlet for in traditional British life then. Do you think anyone would have signed up
1: if their name was put to it? I'm not really too sure. I, I do know what you mean by that but i think in a lot of ways i think people were using it as as a form of catharsis and and also a kind of method of complaints almost <laughs> so they would sort of well this is this is how things are with me and it's not all great kind of thing um, and I guess diaries are that are
0: self-consciously written, knowing that they would be p- potentially published, that's right. completely changes the tone to say a diary that's completely sacrosanct.
1: It is. It is very different. And uh, I think Nella Last, who is housewife 49, um, she was a tremendous writer. She had incredible writing skills and obviously a very intelligent woman, who was sort of stuck inside this middle-class house um, and very isolated, I feel, at the beginning of the war. And it was amazing how the war really took her out of that and put her in the middle of a big society of other women where she could really put her skills in her brain to work and I mean it becomes such a successful force within her community but I think for her and quite a lot of the other diarists it was sort of oh I've always wanted to do something I've always wanted to write and here's my chance to get into a publication because a lot of women weren't brought up and educated or expected to do any work of that sort of type or anything and they wouldn't particularly think about it I don't think half of them but then the opportunity presented itself and they oh yes let me have a go at this see if I can get in the journal exactly see if I can get in the newsletter so so a lot of it was that I think yeah
0: Absolutely, a sense of agency and a sense of being an author, which is something they'd have been drummed out of them that they could ever be. That's a diary side of things, and then I'm thinking about the letters, whereas the diaries could be self-conscious or not. The letters are an expression of friendship, often desperation, and at times the lifeblood of the characters. I'm thinking of when Colonel Mallard is desperate for letters from his daughters because they're all that's really keeping him going what was yeah. the importance of letters at this time and do we know what that means now are emails the same do we understand how important it was to receive a letter and how that could keep you going
1: well I, I think that emails work in a very similar way to letters actually and I think it's wonderful these days to have the opportunity to write so quickly and easily um, and uh and I think in a way, because it is much more casual than writing a letter, it makes it so much more freeing that you can quickly just jot a line out. Oh, just want to say hello. Or, oh, just remember the thought of you today kind of thing. Whereas, you know, in the old letter days, you had to kind of sit down, get up the writing paper, you know. And um, and I, I suppose there was more sense of a form- formality about it. If you read letters from the era they do tend to be a lot more formal Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a convention of obviously asking after everyone and you know rather than getting down to business And, and of course during the war and this is what's wonderful actually about the diaries particularly as opposed to the letters is during the war there was very much this feeling that you can't really show if things are bad if you're having a bad time with it or even if you know you've lost someone who's very special to you you've got to put on a brave face and not let the Nazis know that they're getting us down kind of thing and I think and that that went through the letters as well so people weren't really being that honest through the letters whereas in the diaries they really were I think that there was a feeling that they could really let their emotions out in the letters that they couldn't really do in their day-to-day lives.
0: And transporting yourself back to that time, do you believe in the idea of the brave
1: face? What place does that have in today's society? I think in any society there is going to be an aspect of a front that you put on. For instance, Oscar Wilde said, if you want to wear a mask, you ha- you know, those who want to wear a mask must wear it. And, you know, in the Victorian era, even, they w- would wear a particular facade uh, on their, their person. I think in this day and age, you've got the whole Facebook thing and social media um and there's a lot written about how teenagers today have to create their own sort of self p r on the internet and and everything and i so i i think I think there's always an element of presenting a facade that is you know how society will expect one to be at any particular time really and at at that point there was this sense of put on a brave face a lot of that was i think we don't want the nazis to know that they've got to us and i think that that was a very strong thing for a lot of people a, a very sort of okay we can't let them get the better of us we can't if if there was a feeling that if one person started crying then everyone would be sobbing. Everyone would just sort of collapse and then the entire framework would collapse and everything whereas there was this wonderful humour of the time it's like oh so someone had an arm that had to be removed or something and they would sort of start making jokes oh well at least I got the other arm and you know and things like that and that was kind of how people kind of got round it. It sounds and, like a
0: wonderful coping mechanism, and it sounds like people were looking for coping mechanisms, whether it's self-expression through diaries, or writing letters to each other, or just making fun of a situation that was so dire. Now that's how you get through these things. Times of right. great of, of great trouble. Another way of getting through it, of course, is to come together. Why did you want to write a book about people coming together?
1: Um... I think it's because I'm very fond of communities anyway, and societies, I suppose, and uh, and the whole choir getting together, um, and being part of something that's bigger than yourself and, you know, making a glorious sound that the choir does. Uh, but I think in particular, in times of trouble, I think it's very important that you know where your friends are and that you feel, even if you are sitting on your own, that you you have the backing of a community or a society behind you, that it's not just you sitting on your own, um, facing, say, a bereavement or, or a big loss or something. It's, it's everyone else is behind you as well. You You're da- not on your own. That
0: runs through the entire novel, and you have heralded community as a real balm to vulnerability. And I'm thinking of this beautiful line that I really love, we gingerly held hands, such a simple, childish thing, but so we in our busy, untouching world. And that's happened after a, a cataclysmic event, and they were all standing, I think, ready for rehearsal. And it was the idea that they gingerly held hands, and it was just, in, in, an, un, in an untouching world, community actually cr- providing physical comfort in that moment and adjoining a joining together.
2: I caught her eye to say thank you, And as the slow, methodical introduction began, I felt the blood pumping faster through my veins. The most beautiful sound. The choir in full voice was singing softly, hesitantly to begin with, and then opening our voices straight from our very hearts. The Lord's my shepherd I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green, he leadeth me, the quiet waters, by. The
3: Lord's
2: my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to
3: life.
2: The volume swelled with passion and deliberation as we poured our emotions into every darkened corner of the church. Every dusty cloister and crevice reverberated, reaching a crescendo in the final chorus. A vocal unison of 13 villagers that cold, still night, pouring out our longings, our anxieties, our deepest fears. So we were just talking about vulnerability,
0: and I was listening to the radio last night, and I heard that environmentalist and the political activist George Mombio has just written... He has penned a song that he's made into an album about community and us all coming together. And he had this line that I've heard so many times before, which is, you, it takes a street to raise a child. But I was thinking about how the choir is like a street coming together. It's a chance for everyone to muck in and do something different. And when a village can be very divisive, this is a moment when it can be incredibly nurturing. But also with a little side element, what you race through the novel at, at some points to get to is this element of competition, which I think is at times a terribly British moment. We all love the Great British Bake Off, it's homeliness, it's comfort, but with a little bit of zest. And you want to know who's out, and you want to know who's in. And there were moments when the choir are about to sing and they're doing about to do a competition, and you're like, oh, how are they going to do that? They're terribly worried they're going to completely fail. and when they do do really well, it's incredibly uplifting. Do you think competition is a good distraction? And why do you think we're so interested in it?
1: For me, it was just obvious. Uh, at the beginning of the war, they were the, the government was very keen to promote a lot of um, these sorts of activities in the community, just to kind of raise spirits and everything else like that. Obviously, I think after Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain and definitely the Blitz, it all came to a bit of a halt because it became impractical really to carry on doing doing so but I think in particularly those beginning parts and actually in the middle you you read a lot about garden competitions uh uh, where people you know in the suburbs and uh and especially in the countryside were competing in garden competitions and gardening and a lot of them had a lot of homegrown vegetables and so there was an awful lot of you know, biggest carrot competitions
0: and things like that. And I think it's going to calm you and distract you when, say, your son or your nephew is away fighting. Like, my son's away fighting, but seriously, how is my radish going to do? I think it's got a perfect hue of pink. Like, that's a very good focus.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, and you're right. The, the com- competitive side of things, it really kind of makes people feel an urgency. Yes, an urgency.
0: <laughs> I want to introduce some of our listeners to your beautiful and startling array of characters because this Chilbury, what you've done here is really cross-generational storytelling which I don't think is done very often and it was very very exciting to read it's an entire sweep of ages and um, you're an incredibly insightful observer of human nature and you're able to inhabit a 50 year old man or 10 year old evacuee with voices that are uncanny, who was your favourite character to write? Well, I think I have two favourite
1: characters, two. actually. I do. Can I push you to one in so, this moment? The, uh, the obvious one, I think, one of the more, more popular characters is Kitty, who's the 13-year-old, and um, uh, I, I love her voice because she doesn't really write in a straight line. She sort of is what she's thinking. And she doesn't write in a traditional narrative structure either. So she's a big, very fond of lists, um, which just it makes her wonderful. Like she has this thing about people, everyone around her has a colour. And so she she relates, she describes everyone around her. So she's sort of describing what's happening and kind of giving her thoughts on what's going on. And she's sort of at at the same time, she's precocious, but she's very um, naive and innocent of her own foibles. So she's sort of living in her own little dream world. She's a bit of a fantasist. She is, yes. Uh, in some ways, she's unreliable as well, especially at the beginning. One of one of my writing friends who was reading it um, when I was busy writing, I always remember he said... Oh, you just don't know what she's going to come out with next, you know, and I just thought, yes, that is kitty, and she's just she's very funny in in that respect, she adds a lot of humor and a light heartedness um to to the book, I think, yeah, and
0: also she seems like a It took me back to being 13 myself and having, as you say, this tangential way of thinking and completely disjointed from reality and focused on the things that you're interested in and just picking people's colours and deciding who you're in love with and knowing that they're definitely in love with you and this is just some sort of blip. And being terribly nice to people when things come out and you need to be terribly nice to people. She's trying very, very hard. I like how earnest she is. I really enjoy her as a character and she's incredibly funny. But also what you do is you manage to take our sweetest warmest character and then when you give her something poignant to say is even more poignant and I'm thinking of that list that she has which is list of things to make note of before someone leaves for war Um, and I'm just going to ask you
1: to read that out because it's so beautiful and it really stayed with me So the list of things to make note of before someone leaves for war. The shape of their body, the blank cutout that will be left when they're gone. The way they move, the gait of their walk, the speed at which they turn to look. The crush of smells and scents that linger only so long. Their colour, the radiance that veils everything they do including their death. And it's hearing
0: grief discussed like that in a a list from a 13-year-old who, apart from her brother, is quite naive to the war around her that's circling, that drives the dagger in emotionally. It's incredibly beautifully done how think, much of how much of the grotesque rawness of war did you want to cover and were you ever tempted to put your characters through more pain
1: i wanted to make it realistic to the events were happening that were happening at that time and where they were in kent and uh, you know, because Dunkirk happened and obviously no one no none of the characters were actually in Dunkirk, but obviously they could relay the story. Um and then of course the Battle of Britain happened, uh, and the the Kent was bombed. So I think I think it's very I kind of wanted to put them through something that, that was happening at that time, basically. I, I wanted it to be realistic. But you must have been terribly attached to
0: them. It must have been very difficult to put characters that you're sitting with in your brain, in the little room you write in, through great times of
1: tragedy. Yes. It's it's very emotionally charged to write about that. Yes, it is. But... Do you just drink tea and get through it, writing, or...? That's what writing is, you know... Um, I I always think that if I am bored writing something or if I'm not really engaged, then the reader isn't going to be very engaged either. So I do tend, my writing does tend to be um, exciting scenes one after another yes. if you know what I mean yes. it's, it's, it's a very fast paced book in a lot of ways as a result of that because a lot happens a lot happens to a lot of different uh, people but w- when I mean an exciting scene I, I kind of mean either something very bad happens or something very good or very meaningful in some way um, and to really you know get out the humour the warmth the, how the community and the individuals in- involved feel at any particular time and really get get it out of them um and I feel that if if I'm not working hard myself then the reader is going to have more trouble getting it out too and in any good story you of course need
0: a real villain and your villain is quite excellent and one of my favourite characters I'm not even going to let you do number two of your favourite characters because I think by saying Kitty first, Kitty is therefore your favourite character, and I'm going to ask you immediately about Miss Edwina Poultry.
1: Yes. Tell me about Edwina. She is my second favourite character. You <laughs> right. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> she is. Uh, she. She was one of my favourite characters to write because she isn't. She's uh, so for. People who haven't read the book, she's an incompetent, conniving midwife. She's always looking to make a fast buck, basically, and um, she she's incompetent as well. She makes mistakes all the time. So she enters into this arrangement to with the brigadier that she's going to swap his baby at birth with a baby boy, so that he has the son needed to um that vital air uh yeah to to be the air and um and at the time that she's making it you can already see that she's just not really on the ball is she really going to do it or not and is she going to get away with it and I mean, it's extraordinary, and she's sort of rubbing her hands with glee, and not just saying, no, this is all going to go horribly wrong. She's deliciously
0: sinister, but also, isn't her plan, her devious plan, all in aid of getting back her childhood home? That's right. I, I found that very, very cute of her. I mean, if she, as villains go, if that's her end game, that's very sweet.
1: Yes. I mean, she's dastardly, but... She's had a, she's had a difficult life. She has a reason uh to to be the way that she is. And um and yeah, she she just wants to go back to before her whole life went upside down when uh, when her mother died when she was quite young uh, when she was a teenager and she was basically turned out on the streets and went through all sorts of things. And luckily for her, the First World War came along and she was able to study nursing and she became a midwife. Um And, yeah, so that's kind of her story, but she's always looking for a way to get back, to get back to her family, family home, to buy it back, basically. So her
0: morality's impaired, but, you know, she's a home person at heart, so do we forgive her? Um... Do you forgive her?
1: I don't really. Jennifer's doing
0: I, a really good thinking face right now. I have to say that. but she's she's just not sure. Mm.
1: I don't know. To me, she's just a great character. <laughs> um, I, from a morality standpoint, I mean, it's dreadfully wrong what she does. Uh, but you know, there are people who do who who. Think, put themselves in their own needs in front of societies for whatever reason they do. And do you believe all is fair in love and war then? Um, No,
0: I don't. No. And I think you're going to know what my next question is. Are you ready for it? <laughs> OK. Having done a story that's hinged on morality,
1: do you believe in good and evil? I do. I do. I do think, however, that a lot of people... Do bad things because of things that are bad things that have happened to them. But I think also the society that you live in will to a certain degree prescribe how you act. I mean, the brigadier, for instance, is not blameless in all of this. The brigadier is not. And he I agree. Is, he is not a very nice person. And in a lot of ways, he is the product of the culture. Where he is given a lot of authority, he doesn't need to back himself up in any way, express how he feels about something,
0: and he's able to where a lot of other characters. He's don't not answerable to anyone. Exactly, no. yeah. he's yeah. a bit of a tyrant. Yeah.
3: The brigadier is a bigwig, an overpowering presence, officious and rude and unlikable, yet powerful and ruthless. He's one of the old types, the ones who think the upper class can still bluster their way through everything. The ones who think they can boss the rest of us around and act like they own the country. I knew you'd come, he muttered in an irritated way, his voice slurring from drink. Which is why I had Progert put you in the back drawing room. I have a service for you to perform. Time is of the essence. He sat down behind his vast desk, all businesslike, leaving me standing on the other side. The servant awaiting instruction. I considered pulling over a chair, but fancied this act of rebellion might lose me a few bobs, so I just plonked my black bag on the floor and waited. Before I begin, I must know I have your full confidence, he said, narrowing his eyes as if this were an official war deal. When I knew outright it was gonna be nothing of the sort. Of course you have it, like you always do, I lied glaring at him for even doubting my integrity he didn't scare me with his upper-class military ways i'm a professional brigadier if that's what you mean i'm never surprised by what is asked of me and i always keep my mouth shut i need a job done he said brusquely i've heard you're willing to go beyond the usual services that depends on what the service in question is i said and how much i'll be paid.
0: From that pair, from the Brigadier and Edwina, can I take you to another pair? We've talked about Kitty briefly, but can I talk about Kitty Miss Prim in her sweeping black cloak and her halo of frizzy, glorious grey hair? Their relationship really took me back to those absolutely essential teacher-student relationships that can make a person. When someone sees you for who you are and wants to build you up, I found that very profound, and I wanted to ask, did that stem from any relationship in your life?
1: Um, I did actually have a music teacher, uh, and Prim, very loosely based on a music teacher that I had, and but she and she had that sense of magic about her, as if anything bad that is happening in your life doesn't matter now that you've walked into this room. And we have music, and and it was a very very special time that you know that I had with this music teacher, and she taught me a lot about how you can put aside the bad things in the world and just let music carry you away. I feel like if there's any message from this book, it's
0: it's certainly that. Yes. And every time any one of your characters walks into the rehearsal room, or I mean, less so into a competition. I feel them shocking their lives and their war experience and being enveloped in this safe world of music and a glorious world of music as well.
1: So do you think music can heal us? I do. I think, I think in a lot of ways when they come into the choir, it's a place where, a safe place that they can express their, their, their emotions. Um, Back to British people and,
0: and expressing their emotions. <laughs>
1: That's right. But just singing, I think, you know, uh, when when they sing for some of the bereaved and and there is a, a colossal sense of community and them all coming together. And there's a wonderful moment where someone tells a bereaved woman that, you know, we you may have lost your your son, but you must know that we are always here for you. Yes. Um, the Chilbury Ladies' Choir will always be with you. And I, and I just thought that's really what the book's about, is all these awful things are happening, but the, woman, the women, they realise that by coming together and standing together, it's the most powerful thing that they can do.
0: What role does music play in your life now? As a busy adult, does it feature? I think
1: singing is important, um, it, be it in the car. <laughs> and do you sing in the car? Yes. Excellent. Yes, I sing all the time. Just Wonderful. Just kind of getting ready, clearing up, I don't know, trying to chivvy the kids on a bit, you know. I always think that you can do that with a bit of song, singing, you know. and.
0: Um, I miss starting the day, like we did at school, with a good hymn or a song. Yeah. It rouses the spirits, it really does. I don't know why we don't do it at the office. Just think. HarperCollins harper collins should really get on that
1: i i think you should yes i think you should definitely have words with people about that um but i have found that just just singing i think in everyday life so uh i mean i think it it just does it it sort of wakes the body up it pumps oxygen around the blood it's supposed to provide all these wonderful kind of hormones and everything inside inside your brain um that make you make you really feel good I feel alive. Um, So I I think it's a great thing to do. I think we're suggesting that to all
0: all listeners of the podcast, is that we should all have more song in our lives. That's right. Absolutely. Talk to me about how you unpeeled the gender normative role and why you wanted to explore female empowerment in Chilbury.
1: The choir is a metaphor for the women finding their voice. I suppose Mrs Tilling, who's one of the characters, who's a middle-aged widow, who is the the nurse of the village, um, is almost the backbone of the book, really. And she starts off, uh, one of the first things she says is uh, that she's been told the girl not really to say very much, and certainly not to say what she feels or thinks, um, or to complain about anything. And then kind of as the as the book goes along and she's given more power, I think, within her life and within the community, and she steps up and takes it as well. She starts to really challenge what's going on around her. And she finds her voice and she starts standing up to some of the authority figures. Uh and and that's that's really what the the whole book is a metaphor for that, is how women During that time frame, they really did start questioning the authority and finding their voice and saying what they believed.
0: And was that part of the storytelling that came from Party Granny?
1: Yeah, so not only Party Granny, but um, I actually interviewed quite a few uh, old ladies uh, about their experiences during the war. And the amount of people who said that they it was the best time of their lives, the Second World War, and that through all the bombs and the nastiness and the blitz and everything, all the tragedy, there was such a sense of community and freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of, you know, sexual freedom as well. And they just had such a lot of fun, but also they were allowed to express themselves. They were allowed to take their own... um abilities further there was one woman I spoke to and she became an engineer during the war because suddenly they decided that women who weren't previously deemed capable of being engineers suddenly like oh we need them now so we're going to train all these women as engineers oh oh, and look they actually turned out to be quite good and she loved it so she was an engineer and she used to um, create she ended up designing munitions from a munitions factory and she she said it was amazing i was there designing you know new new machinery and she said it was just out of this world for her she said it was just such an amazing task just a great job but it blew her mind that she was able to do this and that then she could just take it further and she carried on doing it after the war as well she carried on being an engineer
0: there's an incredible moment in feminist history where everything was falling apart, but so were gender roles that everything was falling apart, how everyone lived, how everyone saw themselves it's that was something that was good that came out of it. And I think it's it's so wonderful to have a book that that showcases the energy that can be derived in moments of tragedy. What did you read whilst you were writing this apart I mean, I've heard about your research. But is it said, "What did you read for?
1: Are you able to read for pleasure? And if you are, what did you read?" So while I was reading this, I didn't really read uh, novels for pleasure at all. Actually, I have to admit, because I, uh, uh, I had two children. <laughs> and, um, so you're reading novel, a, have two only children. A Come small, on, where's your reading? Small amount of time. So <laughs> I and I was busy researching. I mean, the thing is, that there is an awful lot that's written about the Second World War. It's such a fascinating time, and I'm quite happy just to, to read that. But I do remember when everything was sort of coming to an end and I did start reading uh, more novels and things. But they tended to be about the second novel. <laughs> <laughs> did you read any modern so, epistolary tales? I'm thinking of Where to Go Bernadette, which is written all in emails. That's right. Um, actually, I, I have to say I've always loved that format. And one of my favourite ones is obviously Bridget Jones's Diary. Uh which and and I wanted to capture that swift chain, you know, uh, the 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 fast-paced narrative that you get in Bridget Jones, and the humour that you can you can get out of a diary as well, and so a lot of that energy I wanted to actually get into For me um, the Chilbury you- Ladies' Quest. So yes, bizarrely, it was. It was kind of weirdly inspired by Bridget Jones's diary. I yes. feel like Venetia has a tiny
0: bit of that when she's constantly falling in love or trying to stalk someone or make them fall in love with her and she's like fobbing off different proposals. There's a, there's a bit of the, the Bridget romance in there. My, one of my last questions is, you know how earlier you were saying Kitty can intuit people's colour?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know what colour Kitty would say you are?
1: I have no idea. Oh, you must Oh, my do. goodness. I have never thought about that before. Oh, wow. I don't know. Are you azure blue? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, definitely
0: not. No. I'm going to have to leave you with that one. I think, I think you're going to have to email me and say, I've thought about it, Charlotte. I think I am burgundy. Well,
1: what? I would like to think that I am a pale but bright sunshine yellow. Well, let's say
2: that's what a you are then. Kind of an then. early
1: morning sunshine. Like first light. Yellow. That's, that's, what I would, that's what I'd like to be. You are the author. You are uh, the creator of Kitty. So I think let's say that that's what Kitty would say you are. But Kitty would never know me because she's a character. But she, she is. She would never be able to know, but she would never be able to understand the concept that she is a construct of my mind (laughs) (laughs) that would fly right over her head wouldn't it she really wouldn't get that at all
0: yeah so and jennifer and i would like to leave you with a bit of chilbury zest to spur you on in your day straight from one 13 year old kitty winthrop and a quick aside that chilbury ladies choir will be in bookshops everywhere you can read the hardback, e-book, listen to the audiobook from the 23rd of February 2017.
1: Tonight at Choir Practice, we sung an especially aggressive rendition of Jerusalem, becoming quite raucous towards the end, as we're so peeved with the Nazis from preventing us from singing in St Paul's Cathedral. You'd have thought that our higgledy-piggledy assortment of ladies was ready to pick up handbags and charge towards the enemy. Does Hitler have any idea of the force and determination of 13 impassioned women? At the very least, I suspect he's never considered the lethal potential of a three-tiered cake stand.
0: And with that, we say goodbye. Tune in next time. This has been Booked.
1: Yeah, aggressive. No, I loved that. That was the best bit. That was the best bit.